the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Think about it. This is our last program of the week, but it's also our first program in October. Boy, does time ever fly. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program committed to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, questions about church, anything and everything that's on your heart. All you need to do is provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 63057. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Remember, if you're driving your car, I was just told there was a brief storm here, a brief downpour. So if that's the case and the streets are wet, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of your screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Lots going on here, of course, because it's the first weekend of a month. Sunday is going to be Communion Sunday. I know that's going to be true for a lot of you in church. I always love that. And then uh, tonight I'm going to be um, with my church in heaven. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 5 tonight. We're going to do the first eight verses of the chapter, and I hope we're going to really enjoy it because uh, after this, things get pretty bleak when we start in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. So lots going on. We'd love to have you join us. Uh, all of our services can be live streamed at calvarysa.com. Okay, enough about that. Let's go to some questions that have been sent in. The first one from our mobile app, this one from Victor. He said, how do we witness to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses? You know, Victor, there's there's not a lot of of uh, variety in terms of, well, do this or do that. I think the only thing that we can do to witness to them is show them that, that our, our, our confidence is in Jesus Christ, that our joy, he is the source of our joy that we have in Jesus Christ. Um, um, you know, if people have their minds made up, and both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are cults, and often their minds are made up and they're not willing to listen so uh, I, I've had the opportunity, I think many Christians have, to, um, to have the people knocking on the doors or riding on their bicycles and want to talk to people. But when you start asking tough questions, they don't have the answers. And when you start asking them questions um, about what they believe, they don't really know what they believe. So uh, I, I just, you know, you don't cast your pearls before swine. You tell them that, you, that God loves them. But for me personally, I want to cut the conversation short. And the way to do that is to center on the person of Jesus Christ. 
So when a Jehovah's Witness or Mormon, then they'll use very Christian terms when they start talking about Jesus Christ, and especially a Mormon, Jesus is my Savior. Um, you have to narrow it down. Who is Jesus? Is he the creator God? And if that's not the case, and of course we know in their theology, Victor, it's not, uh, the only thing that we can do is let them see that our freedom in Christ, our joy in Christ is complete, it's full, because theirs certainly isn't. They don't have the same assurance that we do. So, Victor, there's just not a lot you can do. There's all kinds of information about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses available. Um, But the truth is, when you're looking at somebody with an unwilling heart, there just isn't much you can do. So share, and then move on and find somebody who's receptive to share. Here is a question that came in from our email inbox. This one is from Gerald, and he said, How do I know, without a doubt, that I'm walking in God's perfect and pleasing will? How do I know for certain that he's pleased with the choices I make daily? Gerald, I think there's there's a, a couple things that I can focus on. First, I think it's unreasonable to expect that we are ever going to know without any doubt that we're walking in the perfect will of God. There's simply no way that we can know that for sure. But you see, Gerald, that's important because that's where faith comes in. So here's what we have to do. We've got to rely on the Bible. What does the Bible tell us about being in the will of God? And the Bible is very clear about the will of God. It is God's will that. It is God's will that we don't. Those kinds of things. So the will of God is not difficult for us to find. But as you're walking along that perfect, pleasing, acceptable will of God, then he's going to be with you. And he wants you to know by faith that every promise that he's made you in his word is true. Romans chapter 12 Verse 1 says, and I'm going to do 1 and 2, says, uh, Brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything he's done for you, uh, I urge you, King James has a strong word, I beseech you, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So that's the first thing, Gerald. Have you offered your body to Christ? Have you said, Lord, I'm yours, use me as you will? If you've done that, then... You can know at that moment you're in God's will. But then he says this. We're not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So have you turned your back on the things of this world? I don't mean everything. There's a lot in this world that's good. But I think you understand what I'm getting at, Gerald. Have you said, Lord, I want what you want, your will in my life rather than my own will? And if you've done that, and your mind is in the process of being transformed, and you do that in the Word of God, then we have the certainty that we will then be able to know and test what God's perfect will really is. So that's the first thing. But Gerald, please don't ever minimize the role that faith plays. I I believe, Gerald, many years ago, When I got saved, I knew I had more questions than answers, and I was struggling with all of the same kinds of questions that you have here. And and I I really felt, now this is just immaturity and arrogance on my part as a new believer, but I thought, you know, I'll learn these things in three, four years from now, then I'll get to that place where I will know God's will perfectly. That was so many years ago, and I'm still waiting. You see, the more you know about God, the more he wants you to trust him. And I think too many of us is we're, we're, we're looking to walk by sight rather than faith. And by that I mean we're too willing or, or, or expecting to walk in the certainty that there's no questions. But without faith, remember, it's impossible to please God. And I think, Gerald, the more that we know him, the more he expects us to trust him. And here's what I've found. And this just isn't me, it's in our Bibles, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He began it. He will finish it. And sometimes with questions like this, Gerald, our purpose is, okay, well, i got to finish. God started it, but i got to finish it. And that's just not true. So trust him. Study. See who he is. Walk with him. Talk to him. And trust him. 
Now, with the second question, how do I know for certain that he's pleased with the choices I make daily? If the choices are consistent with the word of God, he's pleased in us because we have been accepted in the beloved, the beloved, of course, Christ. So it's just something every day. And Gerald, here's, I'm going to make this real simple. This is just how I relate to the Lord. Whenever I have doubts about anything, the enemy brings them in and the enemy will bring them to you as well. I want to be able to know that I'm walking with Jesus. And if I walked with him yesterday and I wake up in the morning and report for duty, I'm walking with him today, I know he's pleased with me because his pleasure has already been determined in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Gerald, I hope that helps, and he wants you to know that you're in his will. He wants you to enjoy being in his will. He doesn't expect the middle of his perfect will for your life to be one of those things that that causes us pain or anxiety. So God's will is a wonderful place to be. It won't always be a comfortable place to be. In fact, many times it will not be a comfortable place to be. But it is the only truly safe place on earth. And I'll say this last and then we'll move on, Gerald. There have been so many times when I thought right in the middle of God's will, things would be much different than they are. But it was in those times when I was being tested. It's in those times when God was showing me what he knew was in my heart. And that too is in the perfect will of God. Have no expectations that when God's pleased with the choices you're making or that you're in the perfect will of God, things are going to be smooth or easy or peaceful. That's just not the way walking with Jesus works. Great questions. Thank you, Gerald. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Juan. Pastor Ron, thank you for all you do. You are welcome. You're a blessing to us. Oh, thank you for that. Juan says, I'm trying to understand how the Nephilim, the Nephilim giants survived the flood. Was their gene being carried by one or more of the wives who later gave birth to them? Uh, why do we only hear of male giants? Uh, one, a couple of things. Um, the, the Nephilim and the Anakim, they're different words in the ancient world for giants. So the, the Nephilim did not survive the flood. Nobody survived the flood except Adam, I'm sorry, except Noah and his family. So they didn't survive. But remember, uh, after uh, the, the, the diaspora, the scattering of the people at the Tower of Babel, um, the gene pools narrowed greatly. So if tall people went with tall people, they would have tall people. And, and there were um, giants. Uh, they were huge, huge people, and that's not all that unusual. We still have that today. So it's not the Nephilim that you see in Genesis chapter 6 that survived the flood or their, their, uh, uh, they survived uh, and their genes were being carried. Uh, that wasn't it at all. Uh, we all are descendants of Adam and Eve. Uh, closer to, to our time, we're all descendants of Noah and his family. So everybody else was wiped out. And yet when everybody was dispersed across the earth, when the, when tongues were, were uh, confused, languages were confused, and everybody scattered, the gene pools narrowed mightily and, and people began to look more and more like one another. So they didn't survive. I think that's really important. In fact, uh, one, that's the reason the world had to be judged by the flood and everybody destroyed. Because at that point, the human line had been so polluted that there was only that one man, Noah, and his family that were sanctified or separated by God for that purpose. So they were just much taller people then. And uh, again, we can go into different parts of the world now and see the same thing exactly. Good question. Here is a question from Natalie. She says, Pastor Ron, what does submitting in marriage really mean? Do I have to do whatever he tells me to do? Um, no, Natalie, you don't have to do whatever he tells you to do. What submitting in a marriage means, submit, um, 
wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. So what do you have to do? If, if Jesus tells you to do something, then we have to do it. Now, that's not just women. We all have to do that. And we know that Jesus would never tell us to do anything that's bad. He would never tell us to do anything that is ungodly. So if your husband were to ask you to do something that was ungodly, and we've had situations like that, husbands asking wives to to do sexual things or watch pornography or to tell lies. Paula, uh, boy, she got my attention before I got saved. when She wouldn't tell what I thought was just a harmless lie for me. She just wouldn't lie. And and that wasn't her not submitting to me. It was her submitting to, to the Lord. So submitting in a marriage doesn't mean you have to do whatever he tells you. But what it really means, Natalie, is that um, there's a head of every household. And the, the husband is the head of the wife. Now, if man is smart, he will bring his wife into a partnership relationship. That's very important. Uh, I, I don't do things without discussing them with Paula. I, I don't um, uh, just arbitrarily make plans because uh, the Bible says that Paula has to submit to me. She's my partner. And a lot of times the Lord speaks to my heart and sounds a whole lot like Paula's voice. So I want to know what she's thinking. I want to know what the Lord is speaking to her heart on a marriage. That's what partnership really is. However, if a decision has to be made, it's her responsibility to submit to my leadership, having brought her counsel into consideration. And then Paula, I think, knows in our house that um, the decisions that I, that I end up having to make, and I hope the church here at Calvary Chapel does as well, those are decisions that have been bathed in prayer and, and confirmed in the Word of God. So it's just not a carte blanche to do whatever I want to do because I'm in charge. That's not at all. We also want to remember, Natalie, that the verse in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 21, it says that we're to submit to one another out of fear or in reverence to God. So submitting in marriage is is one to another, husband to wife, wife to husband. But there is a leadership, and that leadership is male. Now, if you're having a hard time submitting, you have to remember that this is all a result of a curse. This isn't the way God intended it. This is the result of a curse, and the only way to deal with the curse is to die. So if you say, well, I don't want to submit, and your husband's not asking you to do um, something that is ungodly. Uh, I'll give you an example. He gets a job offer and he wants to move. And you say, well, I don't want to move. I want to stay here. Another example. Uh, you say, well, I like this church. And he says, well, this is the church we're going to as long as it's a, a church that is not a false teaching church. Then it's your responsibility to follow your husband as he follows the Lord. And if you don't like doing it, well, then you do it. You do it for the sake of the Lord, and you pray. Jesus, if this isn't the right thing, change his heart. If it is the right thing, change my heart. So that's what submitting to marriage really means, and I think what it really looks like. It does not mean he's your boss. It does not mean he's smarter than you. It does not mean he's more spiritual or closer to God than you. What it means is that God wants you to work as a team. And opinions don't matter. And this is the most important thing I'm going to say in this response, Natalie. Your opinion and his opinion are irrelevant. The only opinion that matters in a godly home is that of the Word of God. And if a husband and wife will agree together to agree with God, then all of the questions about submission become moot points. So, Natalie, I hope that answers your question. I think it's very, very important. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Brian. He says, will people who got COVID and died be given a seven ch- second chance if they weren't believers? Brian, the answer is no. Uh, every day, people in this world have a chance to believe in Jesus Christ. His name is known throughout the world. 
I assume the genesis of your question is that, well, they didn't know they were going to get it and die, but that's why we need to make these decisions now, Brian. And that's why we who are believers need to be so active in sharing our faith because people are dying from this virus. We've not lived like through anything like this in, in our lifetime. Uh, it's in the last hundred years. And all of a sudden we get this pandemic and people, I mean, they could have had their eternal insurance simply by believing in Jesus Christ. But you see, before they were afraid, they didn't want to stop sinning. Too many of them, Brian, even when they got sick, didn't want to stop sinning. So there, are, there is no second chance. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto men once to die and then face the judgment. And the, the idea, the, the hopeful notion that, well, they didn't know it. Well, the guy who goes out and gets killed in a car wreck didn't know it. I often hear Brian talk to our people at Calvary Chapel a lot about how things can change in an instant. You know, I got up this morning and I didn't know that it would be my, my last day on earth. I didn't know if I have another 10, 15, 20 years. But in an instant, things change. They change for the good and they change for the bad. But the whole idea is we've got to be ready whenever things change. Because we're not, any of us, guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are. So, thank you. Here's Craig from our mobile app. He said, what's your opinion of Pat Robertson's retirement from the 700 Club? Do you think that overall he had a positive impact on the Christian community to include his run for president in 1988? Craig, uh, it, it sounds a little bit like you're a fan, uh, and I'm probably going to disappoint you. Um, I, I, I was not aware. I, did, I have not read that he officially retired. He's old enough, and I expected him to retire. So I don't know if this is recent or something has happened. Um, I'm being told it's recent. He just announced it. Um, I do not think that he had a positive impact on the Christian community at all. I think many times he was an embarrassment to the Christian community. His um, uh, theology doctrine uh, was um, always, always shaky. Um, his television show was contrived and and um, uh, really preyed on the emotions of of emotional Christians. And uh, I think um, I think by and large, um, Pat Robertson uh, was a negative uh, on on the, the 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 image of Jesus Christ. Um, his run for president in 1988. I mean. Um, you know, what can I say? He, he, we're to do what God tells us to do. And uh, I, I think he got way too nationalistic. Um, I think he lost his way. I think he lost his way. And and I, I, I've not been saved. I You know, he saved a lot longer than I was. I, I got saved in, in 1991. I don't know if before that he started out well. Uh, all I know is what I've seen and heard, and I think he lost his way, Craig. So um, I just don't think that was um, a, a positive, had a positive impact on Christianity at all. So thank you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Drew. Paul said that we're to give thanks in everything. How do you do that when things are really hard? I was making a joke about this just yesterday. Paul and I were talking, Drew, and I told her, I said, thank God Paul didn't say give thanks for everything. He didn't say give thanks for everything. He said give thanks in everything. And I think that's critical for us to understand. You know, when things are going really bad, you look around the world and the world is falling apart. Uh, we we see uh, the, the world turning on uh, mass against Jesus. We see things getting darker and darker and darker, and it's so easy to focus on those things. And yet, even enduring those things, we have so much to be thankful for. I'll give you an example. And Paul and I talked about this, I think, on the radio program yesterday. 
you know, um, um, I, I can even give thanks in this epidemic because this epidemic is being used by the Lord to, to make a lot of people question their eternal destination. And he's given us the answer on Sunday, Drew, I'm going to be able to pray or to, to teach out of 1 Corinthians 15, the first eight verses about the gospel that can save everyone. And our gospel has been empowered by COVID. Our gospel has been empowered by the darkness around us. I can give God thanks because it means our ministries can become much more effective and far more powerful. Uh, even in loss, uh, a dear friend of mine just lost a, a wife of 41 years. Um, and even in that, he can give thanks that God entrusted that beautiful woman to him for all of those years. And I think sometimes we lose sight of it in our pain. So the idea, Drew, is to look up, set our minds and hearts on things above, and then we can give thanks in everything we're to look for. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. Our final 30 minutes of the week. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you today? I'm doing much better. My voice is holding up a little bit better, Cindy. Thank you. Yes, you do sound better. I have a question here. Now, in Revelation 2.17, part of it says, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. So I'm assuming we're all, you know, going to get, get a stone. And then I was wondering, do you think that those are the stones that God would be using to make the new um, holy city of Jerusalem that, that comes down out of heaven? So I'll let you ponder that a minute, and I'll get off the phone and, um, and listen to you. And I'm glad you're, fe- you're feeling better. I thought you sounded fine Wednesday, and Wednesday was <laughs> fascinating. I can next week. I'll get off the phone now. Bye. Bye, Cindy. Thank you very, very much. Um, Cindy, I I'm, I'm, wasn't sure if you, if you said if the white stones were going to be part of the New Jerusalem. That, okay, I'm getting the thumbs up. That's what you said. That's not even what's included there at all, Cindy. What we've got here in Revelation chapter 2 is um, Jesus, remember, chapters 1, um, um, the things that you saw, that's Jesus, uh, the things that are um, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, that's the church age. And then the things that are after, that's the final part of the book that we're actually in right now on Friday nights. So Revelation chapter 2 um, uh, is the church age. And this is a message to the churches um, that Jesus is addressing. Uh, and in this particular case, the white stone has significance that they would understand a little bit more difficult for us to understand. So I will get there in a moment and be able to read it and explain it to you. Hold on. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I thought I was getting there. Oh, here it is. Okay. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, I won't you didn't ask about the hidden manna, so I won't ask. But um, the, the white stone 
was used in the ancient world as an invitation that secured entry into special feasts. We send uh, an invitation, but in the ancient world, there'd be a white stone. You're invited to our party. Walk in the door. You show your white stone, and you'd be welcome into the feast. Um, that we have a new name, a private, intimate name, shows just how personal and special the invitation was. Now, the idea here is that if you were uh, uh, given a white stone, um, it was used by a judge. It was also used in court proceedings. It was used by a judge to declare innocence. So the application for us in this letter is that uh, the white stone signifies our innocence. If we were on trial accused of a, a crime and uh, you wanted to see the judge pull out a white stone, where Jesus said, all we have to do is repent and we are declared innocent. So that's really what the white stone is all about. And it's more figurative than it is literal in the sense that we couldn't build uh, the new Jerusalem with the white stone. It was just something that the culture that uh, Jesus was writing to uh, would have understood. So, Cindy, thank you. I appreciate that very, very much. Let's go to... Hello, Pastor Ron. My husband and I recently visited a few churches in Florida and could see a difference in the culture. In your opinion, what makes Calvary Chapel of San Antonio such a loving church, and how can the church leaders help facilitate in a loving atmosphere? Oh, Ariana, that's so kind of you to say. Uh, it is different. The churches are different everywhere. Um, um, People expect me to say this. I'm the pastor of Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Uh, and I, I, I believe with all of my heart, we've got the most loving church in the history of the world. Uh, and, and, and I think love is so contagious that this is just a place where everybody uh, feels the love as soon as they walk in. Um, um, I, I didn't do anything as the, the leader of this church. I didn't do anything to help facilitate a loving atmosphere. This is just being obedient to the Lord and doing what He wants. I think the, the the real key to the atmosphere here, Ariana, is the people who are here. You know, because I'm on the radio, I get people all the time that will come up and say, "Oh, I want to meet you, Pastor Ron. This is my first time here," and and I'll tell them, "Look, meet the people because they're the best thing about it." And um, uh, I, I really do believe that, that the love in this church is so contagious that it just rubs off on everybody. One of the things that we have always done, Ariana, is we've made ourselves available to the people. We want them to know how much they're loved by God. And I just don't think you can do that if you keep them at an arm's length. Let me also say this. Um, I think we have been given a break by the Lord in this sense as well. Uh, we have a small facility. Um, we have a lot of people, but we got a small facility. So people sort of have to get along, um, but we're close to one another. And I think in big, big facilities, you, you see uh, the same number of people, but really spread out. Um, um, you know, when I go speak at other places where they have bigger stages and bigger facilities, I always feel like I'm too far away from the people. I want people to be um, where I can touch them and where I can see them. Uh, and I think the Lord has really honored that. Uh, so I think we've been helped by a lot of circumstances. I think anything else I would say would be would sound maybe a little self-serving, uh, and I don't want to do that. Let's go to line one and talk with Matthew holding from San Antonio. Matthew, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Matthew, you there? Oh, yes. Uh, um, bless you. Uh, God bless you, brother. Uh, Pastor Ron, Thank you. how are you doing? Thank you, Matthew. I'm good. Good. Awesome. Already, I'm so excited to see you all on Sunday, First Fruits. Um, okay, quick question. Um, we've been in the faith for many years, right? And uh, and we, we have a gift to discernment, my wife and I. And sometimes we share that with our our ministry, and sometimes we share that with other people. Uh, for the most times, uh, for the most times, uh, people take that well, and they receive it, and, and, they th and they thank us for that. But there are times when people have come back and said, well, you know, um, I'm going to pray about what you said. Okay. And they come back, and we kind of share a little bit more. And then they come back, you know, a couple of days later, and they're like, no, it's not right. And then we're saying, okay, God bless you. All right. Amen. And 
And then maybe like a few days later, they come back and they try to, you know, rebuttal or rebuke or, you know, um, back. And I'm, when do you kind of just like, you know what, just God bless you, you know, take it, don't take it kind of thing. I'm not sure if you ever been through that where people kind of, you may have told them something, but they kind of respond back. Um, that's kind of what I want to ask you. Yeah. How would you be Matthew, let to? me, yeah, let me ask you a question so so I can be sure and understand. Explain what you mean when you say you and your wife have the gift of discernment. What does that look like? Is he telling you things about people or what? Yeah, exactly. No, he's actually, because um, we, you know, have you mentioned before about having the gift of discernment, how we, you know, edify. So we try to encourage people or let them know. And say, uh, you know, hey, sister, hey, brother, you know, um, this this has to happen, or you know, they they're sharing God's word and they're probably manipulating, and it's not coming to uh, full works. And so we'll share that with them. Um, and like I said, most times they do receive it well, but there are times that people don't, um, and then they kind of come back and rebuttal. So we just yeah. like, you know, after like the third time, I'm just like, you know what, um, I don't want to continue the conversation anymore. Yeah. Okay, Matthew, let me, uh, you can, you can take the answer off the air. I want to give you something to think about, but, but uh, the discernment is really something that you have to be careful about. Um, when you tell somebody that you have the gift of discernment, um, the gift of discernment, biblically speaking, really doesn't have anything to do with people. It has everything to do with doctrine. So the gift of discernment would be um, if somebody is a, uh, a prosperity teacher, for example, you'd be able to say, uh, because you know the word of God. And, and by the way, there's no discernment without knowing the Bible, without, I mean, really knowing the Bible. Um, you'd be able to say that word is not for the Lord or what this person said that is not for the Lord because it contradicts the Bible. Uh, too often, and I'm not saying this is the case with you and your wife, Matthew, but too often uh, people who who claim to have the gift of discernment are themselves living lives that are out of order. Uh, too often they're going to people and saying, the Lord told me to tell you this, or the Lord told me to say this to you. And I can tell you, and uh, Matthew, I don't know if you've listened to the studies I've done on the gifts of the Spirit, but if if the Lord is giving you a word of knowledge for somebody or or word of prophecy, not not making you a prophet, but the gift of prophecy, then that word is going to be something that's encouraging or edifying. It's not going to be something that is con, uh, uh, condemning at all. It's not going to be something that is harsh or critical. And it's always going to be in love. And I always tell people who say they have the gift of discernment, you need to be very, very careful. And you need to earn your way into the hearts of the people to whom you're speaking. To go to a stranger and and say, um, um, the, word, the Lord has a word for you, or, or the Lord spoke this to my heart. Is is really really encroaching, uh, almost on spiritual trespassing, and I think it's something that you really have to be careful of. Um, most people, and again, this is not about you at all, Matthew, uh, but most people have a tendency to be on the arrogant side when they think they have the gift of discernment, when in fact they've got all doctrinal issues. Or doctrinal issues and and uh, theological. So I think this is just carefully. People need to be careful. We need to walk in a holy, reverent fear of God before we blame anybody. Something that God says. Uh, Matthew, I'll just tell you what my general response is, and as a public person, I have people that will come in all the time and say to me. Uh, 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 God told me to say this to you. And I'll usually stop them right at, up front and say, um, you know, I'm, I'm with Jesus pretty much every day. And um, if he wants to tell me something, he knows exactly where I am and how to get a hold of me. And and I, I don't want to put myself in a confrontational situation with somebody all too often I've got these people who are uh, two and three year old Christians and they think they know a whole bunch more than they know um, I've had people come up to me Matthew claiming the gift of discernment 
and tell me that uh, things like, well, you know, uh, God wants you to have people speaking in tongues here. And, and of course, that's not the gift of discernment at all. So uh, it's just something to be very, very, very careful with. Um, remember, every time we claim to speak for God, every single time, we're standing on really, really holy ground and we need to be careful. Hope that helps, Matthew. Let's go to line one and talk with Ron from San Antonio. Ron, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. I only have a few moments. I'm at work right now. I'm not in the zone right now. We're about a kind of conduits are over here. Can you hear me okay right now? I can hear you. It's a little scratchy, but I can hear you. Okay, I won't keep you long. I just found out just a few nights ago, I was um, looking up some concepts, uh, biblical concepts for my daughter. I came across um, uh, I wanted to have a definition of discernment. Ryan, I... That's Am better. I breaking up a little? Yeah, you were breaking up a lot. That's are you are you on speaker? Okay, well, I guess we've lost Ron. Ron, I'm sorry. It was just it was uh, we, we got so loud we couldn't hear. I didn't even I couldn't even hear what you were calling about. So I apologize. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Uh, here is, I had a question from, let me see, this is from our email inbox from Sandy. She says, Pastor Ron, I was reading First Thessalonians, this could be a man too. I was reading First Thessalonians 5, 1 to 28 this morning. In 5, 2, it sounds like this is the tribulation. Going back and reading chapter 4, I believe it's talking about the rapture. So would why, why would chapter 5 be addressing believers? Thank you and God bless, Sandy. Um, Sandy, it's really not talking about the rapture. Now, one of the things, or about uh, the Great Tribulation, one of the things that we have to understand is that there were no chapter and verse divisions. So this is just one long letter. Uh, it's not that long a letter, but, but it's one. And so the, the, the thought in chapter 4 just bleeds over to... Um, uh, chapter 5. We see the chapter division, we think one comes after the other. That's not necessarily true. And you're right, chapter 4, Jesus is addressing an issue in Corinth. There were people who were dying, or in, not in Corinth, but in Thessalonica. Uh, there were people who were dying, and the, the Thessalonians expected uh, for Jesus to come at any moment. Uh, this was such a supernatural work of God. He was there for less than four weeks. And um, he taught them so much, and they got really saved. I mean, they were really radical in their faith. But as time would begin to pass and Christians began to die and Jesus hadn't returned yet, there were some who were saying, and I don't think these were troublemakers as much as they were just people who were, were concerned. Well, well, what happens to the people who've already died and Jesus hasn't come, in, uh, hasn't come back yet? And... Um, um, I, the conclusion was, well, maybe they just missed out and they're not going to be in heaven. And the whole point of First Thessalonians is to, to reassure them that they haven't missed out on anything, that yes, it's true, some people are going to die, but the, the, the return of Jesus is still imminent. Now, when we get to chapter 5, it says, now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to uh, write to you. Um, I, even that first verse, and you asked about the next verse, so I'll get there in a moment. It's evident that the, those in Thessalonica were just like we are. They were worried. They were afraid. And because there were some who were sort of causing them anxiety, they were trying to solve the problem uh, themselves. And so they wrote to Paul. They're asking about specific dates and times for the return of the Lord. And uh, those are that's information that we just don't have. And then he says, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And that the day of the Lord uh, is always a reference to the great tribulation or the return of Jesus in Revelation chapter 19. So what Paul is saying is that uh, we don't know when this is going to be. 
a thief doesn't call you and schedule a visit. When are you not going to be there so I can come and steal your stuff? And Paul is using that same language. So what Paul's saying, no one knows when the Lord is coming. And so Paul says the time he does come will be when no one expects him to. And then that means we need to be ready. So if we keep reading in this context is important in verse three, it says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, the them are the people who are left behind and are going to be cast into the great tribulation. The end is going to be sudden and without warning. Uh, The end will not only be sudden, but it will be unavoidable. There's no escape. And so what he says, um, this day of the Lord, the great tribulation is going to be so terrible. We need to live our lives as though we're ready for it. And over and over uh, that that reference is used uh, in the Bible, Old Testament and into the New Testament. But when he gets to chapter four, he starts making a distinction. And this is what um, not chapter four, verse four. Uh, he starts making a distinction between the them and the us. And he's done that also in chapter 4. And so in, in verse 4 of chapter 5, he says, But you, brothers, are not in darkness of so this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So we don't have to worry about that. And then he says this in verse 6, So then let us not be like others, who are asleep, those are the ones who are going to be cast in the great tribulation, but let us be alert and self-controlled. And the idea there is that those of us who are alive are ready. We won't be here in the great tribulation, but we live our lives as though Jesus could come at any moment. So he's making a distinction between those of us who are believers and those who are going to be left behind for the day of the Lord. And remember, Sandy, the day of the Lord always is a reference to God coming in judgment, whether it's uh, when he comes personally in Revelation chapter 19 or when he comes um, uh, via the great tribulation and judging the world. So it's not, it's not as easy. He's just making the distinction and he's encouraging the people in, in Thessalonica with that very thing. Thank you, Sandy. I appreciate it very, very much. And keep reading. We've got now inside of five minutes, so let's see what we got here. Ed says, Pastor Ron, God is sovereign, so why should we vote or pray for things to change? Um, you know, Ed, let me answer this way. In our study tonight, uh, here at Calvary Chapel, Revelation chapter 5, we're going to see the earth redeemed. We're going to see Jesus show up and take the title deed of the earth and once again assume control. You're right, God is sovereign. We're to pray because God tells us to pray. We don't pray for things to change. We pray so that we would change. And we want to be ready. And in tonight's study, I'm only going to get to it through eight verses, but in tonight's study we see uh, in in the, the the at the end of the study, uh, we're going to see the prayers of the saints being answered. Thy will, O God, be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray so that we can participate with God. And I think and sometimes we have such a narrow view of prayer that we think that Lord fix this, Lord fix that, God change this, change that. And, and that's not the motive for praying at all. We pray to have the heart of God for the people of God. You remember when God and Moses would, would I call it arguing, but I say that with tongue in cheek, they were arguing about whose people they were. Moses said, these people you gave me. And God would say, Moses, your people. I'm, I'm, I'm fed up with them. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And, and, and what he was doing was putting it in Moses' heart to pray for them. Now, there's something else that we need to understand about prayer, and it's something we can't understand. I know that sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Uh, prayer changes things. Now, God knows what he's going to do, but we don't. And prayer changes things. 
Why God works with prayer, I don't know. How thing, how prayer changes things, I don't know. I just know that prayer does change things. And so, Ed, every time there's something going on and God puts a burden on my heart to pray for something, I get excited because that means he wants to do something. He wants to answer those prayers. So, yes, God is sovereign, but we pray. And in the process of praying, Nevertheless, thy will, O Lord, not my will be done. What's really changing the most is the prayer, you, Ed, and me. Now, the question about voting, I don't know why you threw voting in there. Why should we vote? Uh, We vote because we participate in our government. You know, after the debacle of last year's elections, um, you know, a lot of people are so discouraged uh, there's so little confidence in our electoral system. I mean, it's just scary. Um, but we vote to be a good citizen. We vote to set an example. We vote because it's a privilege that we've been given. And I think it's much like prayer in the process. We are witnessing to others. So I think, Ed, that's probably the best I can do. It's difficult for me to make that connection between the two things, voting and praying for things to change. Make no mistake, Ed, God is sovereign. He is in control. But we also need to remember that the devil is the prince of the air, the little g-god of this world, um, and, and he's the one calling the shots until Jesus gets up from the throne at the right hand of the power of God the Father. Tonight, Revelation chapter 5 here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio on Sunday, Communion Sunday, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the treasure of all treasures that has been entrusted, believe it or not, to people like you and me. Hey, thanks for tuning in this week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you've been listening to the word to stand up for life. Lord willing, lest Jesus comes, I'll be back on Monday on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.